0: Hey guys. How's everybody doing? Will you grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Pretty cool section of scripture to look at today. Tonight. And we're going to start in verse 29. And it says this. And immediately he, speaking of Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Now I'm going to encourage you guys many times as we're going through the book of Mark to, to try to picture some of these stories um, through the lens of, or may, maybe better said, to put yourself in the place of oftentimes the disciples as we go through these stories. After all, the purpose of our going through the book of Mark right now is one of discipleship. Um, the idea being that we want to see what Jesus did, that we might live as Jesus lived, that we might follow him. That's what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus Christ. And here in the account, we have disciples. We have those who are followers of Jesus And I think what we'll find is if we can put ourselves often in that position that we we love to make fun of the disciples and talk about how they were kind of a roving band of idiots from time to time and and all these things. But in reality, if we're really honest, we'll usually see that we would tend to do the things that the disciples did. We would tend to say the things that the disciples say. Um, We would tend to have the faith the disciples had, if not less. We're really not that different. Um, And therefore, when we see how Jesus led the disciples and we see how Jesus speaks to them and the things that he says to them, we're going to see that Jesus's words and the way Jesus led them does tend to apply to us as well. So just a helpful lens for us to look through. And so I want to encourage us to do that tonight and just put yourself, if you would, in the place of the disciples. Right now, there's four of them at this particular point. The others are going to come later. But right now, there's four. There's Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, fishermen. This is who he's called. Now, this means that we, if we put ourselves in that position, the disciples themselves, they're not the who's who of the religious community. Okay, they're fishermen. I mean, just think about that for a second. We're not talking about the the graduating class of the local seminary. We're not talking about teachers at the local Bible college. We're talking about fresh off the river, fresh off the ocean, fishermen. They smell like fishermen, they look like fishermen, they talk like fishermen, they're brand new in this whole deal. They're just fishermen, right? This is who they've been, been, this is who Jesus has picked. Now, for them, this is an incredible opportunity here. I mean, as fishermen, you're not people of any renown. You don't have any real notoriety. There's nothing special about you. You are going to live your life really in obscurity, relatively speaking. You're just going to kind of go about your life fishing, Net, pulling them in, not fancy sport fishing, just pulling in the net, pulling in the fish. That's kind of your existence. And what we also know about Hebrew culture at this time was that young men, as they were going through school, they would begin at a young age, around six, with a school program that involved their learning, even memorizing the Torah. That's the Old Testament first five books memorized. Memorized. And then they would be quizzed on that, and then they would move into the next level of school if they're good enough. And then they would move into the next level of school till they get to the point as graduates, if they will, or if you will, where these young men and women would then apply to rabbis to want to become followers of a certain rabbi. Like that was the cream of the crop. That was what every young, good, orthodox Jewish boy wanted to be, to be able to follow a rabbi and move into that realm. It was a very religious society, not as we would refer to it today, secular so much, right? And the people who became rabbis or disciples of rabbis were the best of the best, the brightest of the bunch, the smartest they would be quizzed, they would be checked on what, did they, what can they do, what are their abilities, what are their skills, what are their gifts, how much do they know. And, and each rabbi would, would quiz this kid to see, man, is this guy going to be able to make it? Is he going to be able to do what I do? Is he going to be able to learn what I want him to learn? To be able to take, as they would say, my yoke, my teaching upon himself and to be able to follow me. And so if you are at this point, like the disciples are, if you're in the family trade fishing, it means you got cut. It means you haven't made the cut. It means you are not the who's who. You are not the one that they would say, this guy's got leadership potential. You're a fisherman. And as you sit there, you're looking at, you're looking at dad, you're in the family trade. You see dad, there fishing. You see yourself in another, however many years it is, whatever the age difference is. This is who you're going to be. And then out of nowhere, this rabbi comes. Actually, he didn't come totally out of nowhere. You're there with John the Baptist and as his followers, standing there along as the book of John talks about And And John the Baptist points at him and says, behold, the son of God, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And Peter starts to follow. Like, we're going to follow this guy, Peter and his brother. Jesus turns to him and says, why are you following him? And he said, well, we just want to see where you live. Just want to see where you're going. And he goes, all right, come on, you'll see. And he follows him along. Now it's changed. As Sam shared with you guys last week, the call changes. He says, follow me, but a different kind of follow me. I mean, figuratively, they're already following him to go see where he lives. Now Jesus is saying, no, follow me. It's a discipleship call. It's a call to say, I want you to be my disciples. It's an expensive call and it's a difficult call to some degree. As Sam shared last week, it's a call to leave everything behind your security, your income, your identity, your family, all of that stuff to leave all of that behind and follow this itinerant rabbi who doesn't even seem to have a home. And you're gonna follow this guy, uncredentialed. But on another sense, it's the opportunity of a lifetime for a guy who is looking at his dad and he's like, this is me in another 20 years or however much it might be. This is what I'll do for the rest of my life. Just pull in stinky nets in the morning, mend them all afternoon, set them back the next time. I mean, this, this is my life. And now I have an opportunity to follow this guy. Some are calling him the son of God. Some are calling him Messiah. And he chose me. Out of all these people, he chose me. And these other three yahoos, but he chose me. It's an incredible opportunity. And then it only gets better. I mean, as you begin to follow him, first he goes into the synagogue that day and he starts teaching and you're listening. You're like, man, this guy is legit. Like he's teaching with authority. He's teaching in a way these other scribes and rabbis and people around here, they can't even comprehend the way he's teaching. Man, we have hitched our wagon to a speedy racehorse, man. Look at this guy go. Yes, we made the right choice. And they're watching how he teaches with authority. And then it goes from there. In the same day, it goes from there to now he's casting out demons, not just cast, not just casting him out. And, and he's not just teaching with authority. He has authority over demons. The, the, Bibles are said, the Bible says that these demons were terrified of him. Like, man, this is unbelievable. Look at this guy. Demons are trembling when he comes around. He's casting out demons. They obey him. I mean, oh, I see great things. Suddenly your outlook on life, your future is starting to look a little bit better, isn't it? You're thinking, I have won the lottery. I am on, man, this is going to be amazing. And then, I mean, you must be feeling at that point like that, you know how it is like when we get to know someone of special talent, someone famous or whatever, we kind of want to move into that. I know him kind of category. I had it this weekend. Did you guys see any of the PGA tour thing this weekend when our own local boy, Jason Allred, he had to qualify, came out of nowhere, had to play in some little tournament just to even get into this big tournament and out of nowhere finishes third. He won $388,000 Sunday playing golf, just out of nowhere. His brother, Ryan, goes to our church, and, and I'm watching this on TV, and I, I, it was all I could do to not go on social media and be like, I fished with him. <laughs> We've gone fly fishing that guy, yeah, together. I actually I outfished him. I actually swing graphite better than he does, despite what you're seeing on TV. just different kind. I know that guy. You know what I mean? Like, that's how you feel sometimes. That had to be how these guys feel, like... This guy's teaching like nobody can teach. He's casting demons out. The spiritual world is scared of him. Oh, things are going to be amazing. And then he heals your mother-in-law. Okay, okay, minor setback, <laughs> minor setback. But, but we can work with this, right? We can work with this. After all, w- once it happens, she is serving you now. So that's something, right? That's what the account says. It comes in, heals her mother. She begins serving him. And I don't want to get caught up in the minutia of this particular story because I believe this serves to feed what happens next. Because if you're the disciples, you're thinking, this is unbelievable. He has authority over demons. He has authority over the word. He has authority over illness. This is going to be amazing. And so what happens after that? It says... That evening, verse 32, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. This is the same day, by the way, same day, one day. In one day, the whole city has heard about this. People are literally running through the town going, He's casting out demons, He's healed the sick, and they're gathering everybody. In, in those days, especially, sickness and demonic possession and oppression are very tightly linked together. So they're grabbing everyone and they're bringing them together. And it says, The whole city's outside the door of this house. I mean, if you're the disciples, you're like, nope, I'm sorry, no one else can come in. We can, because we're his disciples. But uh, you guys just wait back here. Which rabbi do you follow? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I mean, they must be feeling like this is the greatest gig in the world. Well, what happens after that? It says in verse 34, he did heal many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. But it says he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And that had to be the first time for the disciples that they go, huh, that's weird. That's weird. Okay, so he came to proclaim the kingdom. He's got this huge following. The whole city is outside this door as this healing is going on. And he's casting out demons. But yet he tells the demons as they see who he is. And this is the second time now that we've seen this. He says, don't say who I am. Keep your mouth shut. He commands the demons to be silent. He does it in verse 34. He did it previously in verse 25. Why would he do that? I mean, this isn't the first time, or it won't be the last time, I should say, that we're going to see Jesus do this. There's multiple times in the ministry of Jesus where he seems to work against himself, in a sense. He seems to almost make his job harder, I mean, after all, he did say in verse 15 of Mark 1 that he came, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then it would seem like then on the other side, he turns around and he goes, but don't tell anybody. I'm here to tell people, but don't tell anybody. He'll heal people from time to time. And he'll tell them, don't tell anyone. Now, they never listen to him. They do it anyway, but he does. He's always like, don't say anything. And with the demons, he's commanding silence. And I assure you, they're obeying. Why would he do that? I think there's three aspects to this that you can consider that tell us a lot about who this rabbi is, why this rabbi has come, and what's part of the ministry of this rabbi. There's three aspects that if we're to be disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, it's important that we understand them. The the first aspect that you have to consider is that of history. Jesus knows that these miracles that he's doing, the the healing of the sick, the casting out of the demons, these are works that even the prophets of old had used, had talked about that would be signs that come along with the Messiah. And so as the word of who Jesus is with this type of authority and this ability to do these things, as that news spreads, there's going to be implications with it, meaning the people around are going to be expecting something that Jesus hasn't quite come to do yet. That has to do with political overthrow even, even military consequences. And he hasn't come for that just yet. If you think of the story when Jesus feeds the 5,000, John 6 verse 15 says that right after that, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So at this particular time when this king, this rabbi has come, he's not come to rule in that way. He knows that historically, if news that he is the Messiah is broadcast everywhere, it's going to come with it a certain set of expectations that he hasn't yet, huge yet, come yet to fulfill. And so even when he reveals himself, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see he doesn't tend to get in front of people and broadcast, I am the Messiah. He tends to be with his close followers, pulling them aside and saying things like, who do you say that I am? And revealing his mission and his calling to them in that setting. He's not trying to become that king yet, which leads into the second aspect. It's one that the big uh, fancy word for this would be typology, typology, And this is what this means. Jesus, when he comes, it's not just that he came, and it's not just that that he has this mission that he's doing it, but there's something very specific about the way Jesus carries himself. Jesus comes specifically and patterns his ministry intentionally on a servanthood model that he wants us to see throughout the scriptures. There's an intentional servanthood, humble aspect to what Jesus does and how he carries himself. He came to model humble servanthood. He even defines greatness in the kingdom based on those who are the greatest servants. Those who humble themselves are the ones that God will exalt. There is a constant push, not towards this ascension to a throne of greatness, but modeling humility, a quickness to bend a knee and serve one another. And the reason that he does this is he wants us to understand this is how the kingdom comes. The kingdom is inaugurated through the sacrifice and the servant aspects of the work of Jesus Christ. And so it ought not be then that the followers of Jesus Christ expect any different. Those who are great in the kingdom of God are servants. They're humble. I mean, that, that bears pressing on just a little bit. Because we tend to want to avoid anything that has to do with humility or servanthood. And yet it's not just like a, a, an optional thing where he goes, um, some of my followers are humble and some of my followers are servants. He says this is what it means. This is why I came. This is what I am modeling for you. That to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means by very definition that we choose to live in humility. Oh, we fail from time to time. Some of us more often than others. But we are choosing to walk in humility and we are choosing to live a life of servanthood that's looking actively for opportunities to put others' needs ahead of our own, to put God's will, as we'll get to a little later tonight, above our own. But Jesus comes to purposefully, he could have just come right in and said, I'm here to rule and establish the kingdom like that, but that's not how the kingdom comes, and that's not what the kingdom looks like. Even First Peter will talk about how Jesus left for us an example that we would follow. Humility and servanthood are not optional. They are absolute pillars. They're areas that if you're not growing in those in your life, if that's an area you're weak in, you need to push in on that. You need to pray, God, grant me humility. Help me to grow in those things, especially before God chooses to make us humble, right? The high are brought low and the low are exalted. And I assure you, you want to learn it on your own. That's one of those prayers. It's always a frightening prayer. God, make me humble. Humble. But that's, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So he came and he, he commands silence to the demons and he, he is pushing back against those who would make him king even instantly. Number one, we said, because of history and its implications. Number two, because of typology. And the third and really the most important probably is Christology would be the, uh, the Christological, if you're in a seminary class, word for that. And the idea is this. You guys know this, right? I know you know this, but it, Christ is not his name. Right, Jesus Christ. Is, Christ is not the last name for Jesus. Jesus is his name. Christ is not his. Jesus is his English name. Christ is not his name. Right? Christ is a title. Christ is a title that speaks to the fact that he is the Savior, the Messiah, the one who's come to save. And so, Christology is a study of or an emphasis of the work, person, and nature of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? What did he come to do? And what Jesus is doing here is he's making sure that we understand he will be known and can only really be fully known through the light or the shadow, if you will, of the cross. Not by these little works that are done before demons declaring, oh, it's Jesus who's come to cast me out as amazing as that might be, but that's not the work he came to do. He's refusing rule now because suffering must come first. Now, remember, when we were doing this whole biblical theology series, our whole goal was to get better at being able to understand where each individual tree fits in the forest, if you will. So as we're going through these stories and we come across this, we understand these aren't just a series of unrelated happenings. They're not just, you know, oh, this happened and then later this happened, but it really, there's no real connection between the two of them. Actually, what Jesus is doing here is very specific. And it goes all the way back, as you remember, to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium. After the fall of man, God is pronouncing this curse upon men, upon women, on on the results of their sin. And he speaks to the serpent, to Satan. And he says to him in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so Jesus is, even as we speak, in the process of fulfilling that which was declared way back in Genesis 3, and actually Ephesians will tell us, happened before even the foundations of the earth. He's on a mission, a specific mission with a specific goal to do a specific work. And he's not going to let anything else get in his way. We see this throughout his accounts, don't we? I mean, constantly, Jesus has opportunity to skip suffering and go straight to rule, and he never does it. That's what Satan offers to Jesus when he's tempted in the desert, right? Just bow before me. You can rule over all the kingdoms of the earth, and you won't even have to go to the cross. And Jesus refuses. Peter, in his great account, Peter, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ. That's speaking of who he is, his mission, his response, what he's come to do. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Blessed are you, Simon. And just a couple of verses later, he says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And what does Peter say? Not you, Lord. You aren't going to suffer like that. Far be it from you. And what's Jesus' response? Get thee behind me, Satan. Same response. In other words, what he says is, look, get out of my way. I'm here to go to the cross come with or get out of the way, but don't stand in between me and what I've come to do. And this is, you know, I'll hear people say it, I've studied it myself where it speaks at certain times in the scripture, how at that point Jesus set his eyes upon Jerusalem. And at that point he was headed to the cross and nothing was gonna deter him. And I understand that and that that is biblical, but an even more accurate and more telling the whole story understanding of this is that Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem and the cross before there ever was a Jerusalem and the cross. The mission was put in place before the foundations of the earth and Jesus would allow nothing to get in his way and prevent him from doing that this time next time he comes to rule amen but this time he's come to suffer and it's important that we understand when you're following Jesus it is a road that is marked with suffering it just is it just is it's one of the reasons, I mean, you guys know, we've had a pretty rough month even in my household. My, my wife has just had medical issue after medical issue for the last month. Actually, longer than that. Her surgery was five weeks ago today and we're still trying to get out from under the whole thing. Yesterday, we're going into the hospital. They're gonna do another drain because they're gonna get some more fluid out. A week ago, she had surgery. They drained five liters of bile out of her, out of her abdomen cavity. And then they, it turns out they missed some. So they had to get some more yesterday. So as we're driving to the hospital to go get that done, we get a phone call. Her grandmother has passed away in the very same hospital. Some of you guys knew her, Ruth Susley. Now that's, there's a sense where that's a really good thing. You know, she was not herself anymore. She was really frail and weak and now she's running. She's better than any of us are. So praise God for that. But it's sad, right? I mean, we still mourn when our loved ones go. It's just like grief upon grief. And you guys have been amazing. There's been a ton of people amazing praying for us and all that kind of stuff. But I... When you have a proper understanding of suffering and you have a proper understanding of God's will and all those things, it really does make this stuff a lot easier to go through. Not more fun, right? Like we're not smiling. We didn't go to the hospital like, sweet, another drink. We're not, you know, that's just foolish. We're not doing that. But like, we get it. We get it. We're following a Messiah that came here in a broken world for a specific reason to put things back together. And there's gonna come a day when it's all gone, but we're just not there yet. And so we'll count it honor to be able to follow Jesus in this because it's an incredible opportunity to serve him. And because just to be his disciple is amazing. So if we have to go through that to be able to enjoy the kingdom, okay. I can't say I'm going to be walking head high the whole time. Sometimes I'm going to be on my knees going, Lord, you got to help me. But it's part of the walk, right? And this is what Jesus wants us to understand as well. He came specifically to suffer, and he started down the road saying, Follow me. That's important to remember. It's important to remember. Suffering's always been part of the Christian life. Always been part of it. Wait till we get to Philippians. Anyway, enough of that today. So Jesus is doing this. He's telling these demons, like, look, just get out of my way. Don't declare my fame. Don't go out there and think that you're going to spread the news of who I am and usher me right into the kingdom and avoid the very mission that I came. And don't worry, by the way, demon, I have a plan in place to spread my name later. Don't worry about that. There's some people at Heritage that are going to do it big time. But for right now, get out of the way. I've come to suffer. So he does. He tells them, you're not allowed to speak. Do not speak, he says to these demons. He'll say it multiple times because they knew him. Now we speak because we know him. Amen? Amen? But that's not where they are yet, so we'll move on. So it goes further, though, than ordering silence. He doesn't just order silence. Sometimes he just straight up leaves, which is not very Christian of him, right? Right? Take a look at this verse 35. And rising again very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate or in other words isolated place and there he prayed. Now remember again you're a disciple. You've just had an amazing first day on the job right. It's been an incredible day. Fame is blowing up. You have gone in one day from Just nobody, fisherman to sidekick to the most amazing rabbi this place has ever seen. And one day, the whole city is piled up outside his house. That's not happening at the other rabbis' houses. And everybody goes to bed. Now it's the next day. And you're just, you got to be stoked, right? We're just, this is going to, at this rate, we will rule Israel in like a year, maybe. That's if we go on vacation. Maybe sooner. And that's got to be what you're thinking. And then you get up and he's gone. He's gone. Nowhere to be found. The word there where it says that he departed and went to a desolate place. There he prayed. And Simon, verse 36, and those who were with him searched for him. The word there actually means hunted. Like they were looking all over trying to find him. The crowd's already building. They're looking everywhere like, Jesus, come on. It's day two, man. There's more that are here. And they go looking for him. They found him, verse 37, and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And this is a stunning and vastly underreported story about Jesus. Because uh, the the idealism with which we tend to picture Jesus is a little different. That he's this guy that was incredibly meek and incredibly gentle and just tirelessly served and met everyone's needs that he comes across. And then you read this story, and this looks really unchristian. Most of you would not follow a pastor that did this. Honest, it's just true, right? Most of you would not follow a pastor that did this. When my wife was in the hospital last time, online I wrote something and I said something like, hey, I've been to the hospital so much for so many things for a lot of people and my wife, so I am now instituting a ban on hospital visits. Heritage, please comply. I wrote that online. I had people contacting me going, Are you serious? You're not gonna do hospital visits? You're not gonna go see anybody when they're in the hospital? I'm like, oh come on, people take. What do you say? <sighs> so frustrating that you have to do that. But it's true. That bothered people to hear. Like, you mean really? You wouldn't do it? if you're in here, I still love you, but that was frustrating. <clears throat> we can love, we get frustrated with loved ones. It happens. You're probably frustrated with me right now, so we're even. <laughs> But, but that's true, right? Like you wouldn't follow a pastor that would do such a thing, pastor there's needs, yeah, but God has something else for me to do, yeah, those needs like that's how we would look at that, right That's an unbelievable thing that he would do this now again, there's much to glean here because I, I talked to you about what it meant in that culture for a young person to become a follower of a rabbi and and The rabbi, when he was interviewing these kids and quizzing them, again, he's looking for someone that can do what he does, that can teach what he taught, that's going to memorize and learn and basically duplicate his ministry. That's what a rabbi is doing with his disciples. He's looking for followers that will duplicate, multiply, really, his ministry. And there was even a phrase that was very popular. It was kind of a a Jewish blessing upon other people where they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was a really popular phrase. And it meant, may you follow so closely behind your rabbi that even as he takes steps in the dirt, his dust just gets all over you. It's another way of saying, may you really follow, obey, and do exactly what you see your rabbi do. That's what it meant to be a disciple in that day. So again, if we are disciples and we read this passage, what do we do with this? Here's a ton of people with legitimate needs that you have the power to meet and he leaves town, disappears. It's a stunning thing. I think there's a couple of things that we can take from this for sure that that even in themselves won't exhaust all the application for this, but they're really important ones I think we should consider. The first is if you're taking notes and you should be as a disciple, the first is this. Understand that Jesus depended on God. It's important. It's the framework for all this stuff. Jesus depended on God. His desire for secluded prayer and time away with God alone proves he's not just some magician summoning up some power within him. In fact, Philippians says that he laid down these abilities, this this special role he had as God, that he laid those things aside. You say, well, then how did he do all of those things? He walked by the Holy Spirit. I firmly believe that in Jesus Christ, you see things that if we had the faith and the ability that you would see a lot more of in followers of Jesus, and I think you'll see them out of followers of Jesus one day. But the Bible, Jesus is not some magician, like just doing tricks. Let me give you an example of where you can see this. Um, You see these stories, like for example, John chapter four, other passages where Jesus comes and it's like he has the right word at the right time for the right person while he's there. Whether it be the woman at the well, for example, or whatever the case may be. He just had the right words that diffused situations that were tense. Just it was incredible how he had this just wisdom. So where did he get this wisdom? You go, well, he's Jesus. Of course he had wisdom. He's God. He had all wisdom. That's not the answer to that question. The answer to where did he get the wisdom is that Jesus lived in total dependence and submission to God. Isaiah chapter 50 actually speaks of it in Isaiah 50 verse 4. It's a prophetic passage speaking about the Messiah. And it says this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. How? Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Jesus got up in the morning and spent time with the Father. And it was that was like the gas station, if you will, that fueled the ministry that he went and did that day. That's what Jesus did. He lived in complete dependency on God. God wasn't just some force he could tap into once in a while or acknowledge here and there. He needed that relationship with God. He was completely submitted to God and he followed him closely, but he went and spent time with God every morning. And you'll see, you go through the scriptures and you look at the times where Jesus goes out and pray and you see ministry comes from these things. This is where this stuff flows from. So how much more us? How much more us? I tell you guys, I I fear even for myself, I've been really convicted about this lately, big time, that, that I spend more of my own, I'm speaking for me, that I'll spend more of my own ministry or my own walk with God depending more on giftedness than on God. Depending more on maybe abilities or talents or experience or education or whatever it is that God has gifted me with rather than taking the time to actually depend on the God who gave me all of those things. And frankly, that's idolatry. I mean, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And and I've just really been convicted on this. Like, Jeff, you you need to depend on me a little more. You're going to get a little hot-headed if you don't. And, and I don't know, did any of you guys see the blog article that I wrote yesterday? Did anybody? Just two people. Yeah, that's about right. So, <laughs> the, so yesterday I was in the yard. I, I, I Go read it later, but I cut some, some tree limbs down like three weeks ago at our house, um, maple tree. It dumps a billion leaves on my yard every fall and I just get mad every fall. And so I'm just like, all right, this year I'm gonna trim that bad boy down. That'll at least help some in a few months. So I cut and I got a little carried away, which happens, right? The saw was sharp and I was having fun. So, um, so I had this big pile and it was more than I could carry away at one time, I only had one opportunity to get the refuse out. So I had to leave some of it behind. And of course it sat there for three weeks, right? That's how it works. And so I was looking at it yesterday, I just happened to notice it, and it was kind of like that, Ugh, I gotta go move those things. Man, I should have done it before. Maybe I should have just not chopped them at all, then I wouldn't have to worry about You know that kind of whole argument that you have? And then I noticed they're budding. They've been there for three weeks, completely detached from the tree, and they're budding. Big buds. Now, I know I know that the end result is for these branches is death, right? I mean, I know that. I know that it's been actually not freezing so much lately. We've had a lot of moisture finally lately. I know all those things play into it scientifically, if you will. But I just couldn't help but wonder. I mean, you look at this tree, how long it's able to continue to exist based on the nutrients that were already in it, but having no actual tapped into the actual source of that which is going to keep it alive. And I wonder how much I do that. Like how often, you know, Jesus says in this, the whole parable of the vine and the branches, you can do nothing apart from me. Well, we can look like we're doing something. There's We can be budded. We can look like we're producing fruit. Judas, Judas, he was the man in most people's eyes. He even, when people came in to pour out their offerings on Jesus, he got indignant. We could have sold that and had money to go take care of the poor. That sounds really Christian, doesn't it? He looked like he was producing fruit, but the end result was death. We need to learn from this. If Jesus needed to, needed to seek the Father, to to take of primary importance his relationship with the Father before he ever even attempted to go out and do any other ministry, then how much more so does Jeff answer infinitely more so? You can say that. Say infinitely. Infinitely. You too. You too. Right? Right? So as disciples, disciples are people who seek God. Disciples are people who should seek God daily. That's what we see first of all. The second one is this. The proclamation of the gospel is the greatest need. The proclamation of the gospel is the greatest need. This is the second thing we see and can learn from Jesus as he seems to bail on these guys. Um there's a prominent movement around, it's actually weakened a little bit as of late, but it's still out there pretty big time. It's referred to often as the social gospel. You guys, some of you guys heard about this? The social gospel is the idea that what the church really needs to do is get back to being like Jesus was, meeting needs, taking care of the sick, take care of the poor, um, those kinds of things that we've called to do. And that, that is where gospel proclamation flows out of only after that. It's even based on some secular um, philosophers and things like that, such as Mavlov's, is that how you say his name? Not Pavlov, Maslow, that's it, <laughs> That's Pavlov is the dog drool guy, right? Okay, so Maslow, his uh, hierarchy of needs, have you heard about this, that there's just basic needs each person needs to have met? And there's a lot of people that believe that if you don't meet a person's basic needs first, shelter, food, emotional encouragement, things like that, then, then you, don't even, you can't even begin to pre- present the gospel to them because they're not gonna be listening because these other needs so supersede everything else. Well, that's not what the Bible proclaims. I mean, think about this. These people had legitimate needs. I mean, it's one thing to look at Jesus here and just like, look, hey, he was doing what the father did. And that's noble. And that's just amazing. But put yourself in the position of the blind guy that just got there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just, <gasps> he's healing the blind. He's gone. That's a tough position to be in. But Jesus leaves to go present the gospel in these other towns that haven't yet heard the gospel. The primary need of every individual on the face of the earth is the pronouncement of and understanding and acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You you cannot build the church on social justice and social reform. You build the church on the gospel. The primary mission of every church must always be the proclamation of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. Now, should mission and social justice and those things flow out of that? Absolutely. But they're not primary. You cannot get the cart before the horse on this. And, and what tends to happen in a lot of places is that when you, when you get those things out of whack, it becomes all justice, no truth. And you, you can't do that. The truth comes first, and out of an understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is, that's where ministry comes. I mean, it's hard to think about, but the honest truth is Jesus did not meet every need that that came across his desk. He didn't. For every person he healed, he walked by a whole lot that he didn't. And, And it's hard to understand why. We just trust in God's goodness, God's sovereignty, God's plan, but it's the reality of it. And that leads us really into the third one. And that's, this is kind of a bigger one or a harder one sometimes for us. The third one is this, that we can learn from this. Jesus lived to fulfill God's mission, not man's. Jesus lived to fulfill God's mission, not man's. Here for the first of many times in the gospel accounts, we see a huge gap between the program of Jesus Christ and the program of everyone else. And there's a big gap between the two. Over and over and over, Jesus fails, if you will, to meet the expectations of people. And he chooses instead to meet the expectations of God. He says, the scriptures say, I only do. You know the the quote, right? I only do what I see the Father do. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Which, Which means then, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. That means Jesus has to say no a lot. And that's not a real easy thing. I mean it just it doesn't make sense because we want to paint him in this idealistic brush of of this man who tirelessly met every need and then say that that's what we should do too. But Jesus passes up on a golden opportunity for increased notoriety, increased fame and just plain to meet significant needs, significant needs that people had. They're lined up at his door and he says no and leaves. And goes somewhere else to go preach the gospel. And he says, I only do what the father tells me to do. He lives in fear of God. Now, again, it sounds really noble. And we're like, yeah, he did what God told him to do. That's what I would do too. Really? Think about it. Put yourself in that position. You just got through praying and God's telling you to go to the next town. But there's a line of sick people outside the door and you have the ability to make them sick or to make them healthy. That's going to be hard to walk away from. Let's just be honest, right? Could you walk away from that? And look, I'm a people pleaser. We got any other people pleasers in here? Some of you won't raise your hand because you don't want people to think bad of you. (laughs) Right? But it's true. That would eat me alive. That would eat me alive to know that I had the ability to meet a need and I had the expectation that I would meet that need and that I walked away from that. That would be an incredibly hard burden for me to carry. It just would. But this is what He does. This is what Jesus does. Few of us could do this. I honestly think that. I think few of us would be able to make such a decision. Um, First of all, before I say anything further with this, if you make this decision, but you haven't spent time with God in the morning, then Lord help you. You know what I'm saying? Like you better be sure that that's what God's telling you to do. Or you're setting yourself up for a lot of drama. You know what I mean? But that's the necessity of being dependent on God, making a decision like that. But how could he do that? How could Jesus leave these people behind? Well, well the, the reason is pretty simple and it's pretty evident throughout the scriptural accounts of Jesus's life. And, and it sounds harsh, but it's true. Jesus values his relationship with God, the father, and the authority of God, the father, more than he does relationship with man. He just does. He is in fear of God, not in the fear of man. That's, that's, The honest truth of it. Um, the, The reality that we tend to live in is we tend to fear man more than we fear God. That's why we don't evangelize like we ought to. That's why we aren't, the church isn't as effective out there as we ought to. It's why we don't uh, offer and help in the kind of accountability that we ought to because we're too, usually too uh, consumed with what will they think if I do this? What if they don't like it? Um, What if they think I'm a Jesus freak or what if they leave me or those kinds of things? Those tend to be the kind of things. uh, And I'm I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm saying I struggle with these kinds of things myself. This is just the reality of where most of us live. This is why we don't spread the gospel as effectively as maybe we should. It's why it's easier to go on a mission trip and spread the gospel in Africa rather than in home in our neighborhood where they know us, right? Because we tend to fear man more than that. Um, what The Bible has a lot to say about that. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, when you look at Jesus' story, you'd think the opposite. Oh, he's taking a risk here. Boy, if this doesn't work out, man, it's going to just come back to bite him. This, is, this would not be good. The safe move, Jesus, would be just take care of these people and then move on when everything's done. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says doing what God has called you to do is the safe move. And living in fear of people is a trap. And you guys live in that trap? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Right? There's a great book on this. I'd love to commend to you if you uh, if you're a reader and if you struggle with things like people pleasing and all this, which most people I think do, some more than others for sure. It's by a guy named Ed Welch.